Well, that brings back some really good memories, uh, trying to clap. In uh, Africa, our church really liked to clap, but they were a little bit shy. And so I had to try to clap to help others know it was good to clap. And I am, there's not a musical bone in my body, so I really have to, I can only do one thing at once. And can that's if sing and barely that, and I'm not made to move when uh, songs are going. So I would try to clap, but boy, they made fun of me for can never get the rhythm or beat or whatever they call it right. And so just watching the person next to me trying to clap at the right time. And I moved to America and it's still definitely the same. <laughs> but it's nice to sing and clap and enjoy God with you. And it is so good to be here. The kids and I just have loved being here. And I can't wait for my wife, Marta, to get here as well. She's flying in right now and gets in at uh, about one o'clock. There was basically one plane left flying out of the country, so we're thankful that she's on it, and I can't wait to see her. You can uh, please continue to pray for our family and to pray for Muzi as there are some uh, visa drama issues with uh, COVID and all that, but we're trusting God. He's good. He's got a plan, and he's going to take care of us, and we're looking forward to all being together and serving here soon and we are so uh, grateful for the way that you have served us as a family i can't say thank you enough for all the meals and the hospitality and i've enjoyed spending some time with isaiah and with uh, clifton who's getting married uh, this next week right saturday so we're so excited about that praying for you too been fun to go to the office and uh, walk around Fullerton a little bit and be praying and I'm excited about a lot of things here at Cornerstone and it is uh, definitely exciting for me to be at the beginning of a preaching ministry here at Cornerstone the beginning it's fresh you know what is God going to do uh, where are we going to go through his word his word has such power. And I've been thinking a lot about where to begin. What should I be saying at the beginning? And I keep going back and forth, actually, more than I ever have before, because this is an opportunity. You don't, you don't get a beginning again. And so we're going to be getting into the book of Ephesians and going through that book just verse by verse, because it gives us such a beautiful biblical theology of the church. Uh, but please be patient with me. We're going to get there to Ephesians. But I wanted to take some time at the beginning and just try to cast some vision and talk about where uh, we are at and what we're about and what we're doing here and what we're hoping will, will happen and what are some of the key things that we hope this ministry will be about. And last week we looked at the end of Luke. And started basically with some motivation. And we're jumping around a little in the Bible, so be patient. But I wanted to start with motivation. Because obviously we know we're about Jesus. And we're about God's plan to glorify himself through Jesus. We've got, as a church, this great big revelation from God. I mean, we know God's plan for the entire universe. And we know the ramifications, heaven, hell. And we've been given the job to proclaim that message to the entire world. And I wanted you to see last week as we looked at Luke, 
that we really have good reasons for proclaiming it confidently, not arrogantly, but confidently. Because of the resurrection, we serve a risen Savior. Because of what God's accomplished by establishing the church, the church itself is a miracle. And because of the way the whole Bible fits together and points to Jesus. And so we should be people on mission, not just surviving, not just people who are forgiven and then, and then die making it. We have the gospel. We serve a risen Savior who has done impossible things in starting the church. And we have his plan laid out in scripture. And we have so many proofs that he keeps his promise. We should be motivated as a church to go out and live for him. How can we take this gospel out? That's the question. The more we understand the story in scripture, the more motivation we have to be asking, what does it look like for us to live full out for him? Motivation. We have motivation. Today, though, I want us to talk about expectations because we want to go out there and we want to serve and we want to work. As we go out, though, our expectations, what are we expecting? What are we hoping will happen? And specifically, I thought we could look at Luke chapter 10. So we're going back. I know this is a little strange. We're going back in Luke. We looked at the end of Luke, but now we're going to look at the middle of Luke, and specifically Luke chapter 10, verses 16 through 24, where Jesus is talking to some of his followers who he's sending out to minister on his behalf. After this, you can see Luke says in verse 1 of Luke 10, the Lord appointed 72 others and sent them on ahead of them, two by two, into every town and place where he himself was about to go. They're being sent out, these 72, almost like missionaries. They're being sent out as Jesus's messengers, his representatives. And verse 16 actually is at the end of instructions Jesus is giving them before they go. And verse 17 and following record what Jesus says to them after they come back. Before they go, Jesus has something to tell these 72. And after they return, he talks to them a little more. And one of the reasons he's having to do all this explaining and instructing before and after they go out to serve is because he knows what he is sending them to do is going to result very differently than what they thought. As Jesus sends them out, he tells them what's going to happen. And as he tells them, he knows that he's turning their expectations of what ministry is going to be like on its head. This is not going to go how they thought it would because they are on their way to Jerusalem. That is the context, actually, if you work your way through Luke. You might remember Luke 9, verse 51, where Luke says, When the days drew near for Jesus to be taken up, he set his face to go to Jerusalem. And that phrase, set his face, is an important phrase because this is kind of a transitional moment in the gospel. After introducing Jesus and 
showing us how Jesus presented himself to Israel in chapters 1 through 8. Jesus is finally now going to Jerusalem, Luke says in chapter 9. He set his face. He resolved himself to go to Jerusalem. And while we know the story of what was going to happen, we know how he was going to Jerusalem to die, the followers of Jesus at that moment were thinking something very different. Because they had very specific expectations of what they thought would happen when the Messiah set his face to go to Jerusalem. I mean, this was a significant place in biblical prophecy, Jerusalem. And the Messiah entering Jerusalem is a significant moment. And so if you ask the average disciple what they expected to happen when the Messiah deliberately set his face to go to Jerusalem, they would have had some pretty serious expectations. Like we're talking the defeat of their enemies and him being anointed as king and probably them being set up as his leaders. And yet for the past chapter or two in Luke, Luke 9 and 10, Jesus has been saying that they're actually going to Jerusalem to watch him die. On a cross. In fact, it's a little funny because it's hard to imagine, really, if you look at what the disciples were hoping for and what Jesus said was going to happen in the next few years, it's hard to imagine a much greater contrast in terms of expectations. It's kind of like maybe you thinking someone's going to take you to a birthday party, a surprise birthday party that you think you somehow found out about. And you walk into a room thinking you're going into a surprise birthday party only to walk in and find out you are going to be executed instead. It's that drastic. It's that shocking. Jesus is turning their expectations on their head for pretty much the entire last chapter, chapter 9. I mean, Jesus says, I'm going to suffer and be rejected and die. And that the same thing would probably happen to them as well. You remember, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. And so we don't misunderstand what that means. Jesus says, for whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. And while we take that sort of metaphorically, the reality is, as Jesus is looking at these disciples who he knows are expecting to be given positions of honor in the days ahead as he ascends to the throne. He's telling them what's actually going to happen if you keep following me is that most of you are going to be forced to die a terrible death instead. You name an expectation the disciples might have had, and Jesus is turning it upside down. They're going to suffer now instead of being honored. They're going to die. They're going to be weak. They're going to be rejected. Some of them are going to be homeless. They're going to experience poverty. This was a completely different vision for their immediate future than the disciples were imagining when they first began following Jesus. And you know, it gets even more intense at the beginning of chapter 10. Because now, as Jesus is sending the disciples out, he's looking at the nation as a whole, Israel. And he's telling his followers that he wants them to go out and offer the kingdom that was promised in the Old Testament to Israel. And that they should know as they do that, Israel basically was going to reject it. And 
Israel was going to reject them as well, which, of course, is why after describing their mission in verses 1 through 11, Jesus ends verses 12, 13, and 14 of chapter 10 with all this talk about woe and judgment on different towns in Israel. You see it? Woe to you, Chorazin. Woe to you, Bethsaida. And you, Capernaum, verse 15, will you be exalted to heaven? You shall be brought down to Hades. Woe, woe, woe. This is what you're going to do, Jesus is saying. Preach. And this is the result, judgment, which was a very different expectation and had implications for the disciples. Because if the disciples were thinking about the Messiah's mission in terms of the salvation of Israel right then at that moment... Of course, they must have been thinking of themselves as kind of being like Israel's heroes, riding in to save the day. And yet the reality, Jesus is saying, is that their mission is going to result not so much in the salvation of this particular generation of Israelites, but more judgment instead. They thought they were riding in to save Israel, but their ministry was going to end with death for most of them and judgment. For most of Israel as well. And so I'm saying, as you're looking at them in chapter 10, Luke chapter 10, you're asking, you're wondering, what exactly is there for them to find hope in? If the reality of their ministry at that moment is so different than the expectations they had for ministry, what possible reason? could they have had for motivation, for anticipation, for excitement? Which I think is an important question, actually, and, and not just for, for them, but for us as well, because obviously I know our situation is, is different than theirs. We're not out there offering the kingdom to Israel while Jesus is alive. We're at a, a different place in salvation history, but in some ways our situation is similar to theirs. We're still living in an era primarily of suffering, you can be sure, mark it down, as we're getting excited about the gospel and about going out there to serve Jesus as a church, there's going to be a lot about our ministry that is going to be different than we might have expected. We might have expectations in ministry, and that's part of the, the fun. I'm excited right now. I have a lot of hope. And you know, some of those expectations might be fulfilled. They might go the way we want. And yet the reality is that others might not work the way that we expect. And so we need to know, like they did, what is there for us to be happy about? What should we be excited about as a church? Really, fundamentally, at the core, what should we be hoping in? If following Jesus doesn't mean we'll always be successful, and if we're probably going to suffer and be rejected at some level, why keep going? What is there for us to find confidence and joy in, and we've got to get this right, or we give up, or we get discouraged when we don't really need to be. And so I want us to look at verses 16 through 24 and see the way Jesus answers that question for these disciples. And I want us to look specifically at the privileges he reminds them of that I think should be what encourages and drives us at Cornerstone, whether our ministry as a church goes super well and easy, or whether it's really difficult. There are three privileges here that should keep us excited and keep us rejoicing and should drive us. First, representing Jesus. 
Jesus says, this is uh, verse 16, the one who hears you hears me, and the one who rejects you rejects me, and the one who rejects me rejects him who sent me. Now, obviously, these particular disciples were living at a pivotal moment in salvation history. If you look at the context and even look at the way Luke is setting this up, you'll see he's been moving us to think of Jesus as being kind of a second Moses and coming to accomplish a new exodus. And that's why there's even 70 or 72 of them and why Jesus talks about the harvest and why they're going out two by two and why they're able to do all these miracles and why they're talking about the kingdom. It's all connected to these Old Testament promises. And it's it's as if they're being sent out to challenge Israel to make a decision about Jesus and the kingdom that he was offering. Are they going to submit to God's plan and submit to Jesus as God's Messiah or not? And, and so Jesus is reminding the disciples of the significance of their mission. They represent him as they delivered the message that he gave them. It was as if Jesus himself was there with them personally delivering that message. The one who hears you hears me. Which meant that if Israel heard the disciples and accepted their message, they were not just hearing and accepting the disciples, they were accepting Jesus, which also meant if they rejected the disciples, they were rejecting Jesus, and not just Jesus either, but also the one who sent him, which is huge. I mean, being able to represent God, no matter how people responded, they needed to remember They were speaking for God, and we know this encouragement is to these disciples here in a somewhat unique way, but I think if we step back, we can extend at least that basic principle out because biblically, we also know there is still such a tight connection between Jesus and believers that as we go out there to represent him and people reject us and attack us, we can legitimately say they are actually rejecting Jesus and attacking Jesus. Which is why Jesus says to Saul later, you remember in the book of Acts, right? Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting the church? Is that what Jesus says? No, Acts 9, 4. Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And yet actually, who was Saul persecuting? He was persecuting Christians. But of course, the point is that there's still such a tight connection between Jesus and his followers that even now when someone persecutes Christians, they really are persecuting Christ. And that, I think, is a privilege, a huge privilege. And I think understanding how tight this connection goes is one of the best means of overcoming discouragement in this world and in ministry. Because if you think about what is one of the primary reasons we so often get discouraged when we're suffering, especially in ministry, it's not just the suffering that discourages us. That's hard, but that's not the primary thing that discourages us, I don't think. It's usually this feeling that we're on our own. We're unique. No one understands. No one's with us. We're out there suffering by ourselves. And yet as believers, that is one feeling that's absolutely never true because we're never really on our own as followers of Jesus. There is 
a union that goes so deep, a solidarity between us and Jesus that as we faithfully represent Jesus by accurately communicating his word, we can say, like the disciples, when people reject us, they're ultimately rejecting him. That's one of the things I love about the ministry. It's so freeing when you're thinking straight because it's so not about you. You know, I, th I think we have to be careful in ministry, especially because it's so easy to make it so personal. And we become excited and we become discouraged and we make it sound spiritual. But really, it's not as much about Jesus as it is about us. We're so pumped when people respond and we're so discouraged when they, are, they don't. Not primarily because we're concerned about their relationship with Jesus. That's in there maybe, but that's not the main thing going on. The, the main thing going on is that we're worried about what people think about us and we're finding our identity in what they think about us when obviously that is not what ministry is about. If we're sharing the word of God, because if we're sharing the word of God, it's not so much about them and us really as it is about them and an encounter with God himself. I mean, we believe that, right? We believe when we faithfully deliver the message that Jesus gave us, which we now have revealed in his word here in this book, in the Bible, we're not just speaking for ourselves. We're actually speaking for Jesus himself. I know we didn't receive special revelation the way someone like Paul might have, but the Bible is still special revelation, right? We're not apostles or anything, but we are ambassadors of God. At least we're not apostles with a capital A, but we are messengers. We are representatives of God, which if you look back at Luke chapter 10, verse 16 again, is probably the fundamental thing Jesus is saying to them. He says, the one who hears you Here's me, which again is huge because it's not just that when they reject the gospel message we're delivering, they're rejecting Jesus. It is that when the disciples delivered the message that Jesus gave them, they were speaking for Jesus. And think about that. Think about that. Like enjoy that. I don't know if you ever thought about how amazing it would be to be able to hear Jesus speak. Can you imagine? Because hearing Jesus speak is hearing God speak, and yet these disciples are getting a privilege that is maybe even a little bigger than that because Jesus is saying they were being given the opportunity not just to hear Jesus speak, but to speak for Jesus. And I'm talking in such a real powerful way that even though Jesus at that moment wasn't going to be physically present in the villages with them as they went out and delivered the message Jesus gave them, it's like those people in those villages were actually going to be hearing Jesus speak through them, which again is something the rest of the New Testament extends out beyond these original 72 to anyone who faithfully accurately explains the meaning of scripture to others. This is why we take the Bible so seriously, right? How does God speak right now? God speaks through what he's spoken. The scripture is the word of God. And what's the scripture? 
it's the meaning of the scripture that is the scripture. And so really it's the meaning of the scripture that is the word of God. Which means if someone is faithfully explaining the meaning of scripture, they're not just speaking for themselves, but they're actually speaking for God. As someone has put it, the proclamation of the word of Christ is not simply an explanation, an application of the Bible. It is itself a divine encounter in which the Spirit again confronts the hearers with the omnipotent force of God's own word. And that is something to be excited about as we look to the future. We want to go out there and preach the gospel, and we want people to respond. Yes, of course, but whether or not they respond the way we want, we can't take for granted how big a privilege it is for someone like us, someone like us, to be able to speak for God. We are speaking for God. I like how Paul puts it in 2 Corinthians 5, verse 20. You know the passage. He says, we are ambassadors for Christ representatives and and we represent Christ in such a significant way that as we preach the gospel Paul says what you remember the verse so good it's so good God is making his appeal through us what's that mean God's pleading with people and how does God plead with people Paul says he's making his appeal through us, which is why Paul says we implore you, which means what? We beg you. We beg you on behalf of Christ as we're standing here, Paul saying, begging you. It is as if Christ himself were here pleading with you. Be reconciled to God. And I'm saying if you're thinking straight, what is exciting in ministry? What is exciting in ministry? Imagine being able to speak the word of God to someone else. In such a way that as they're listening to you speak, they're hearing God speak. You are a means of God's grace in their life. And you know, I want to shout this out because I know sometimes I make the mistake of thinking that just because something looks or feels ordinary, that it is ordinary. Do you ever make that mistake? You know what I'm talking about? And so honestly, sometimes explaining God's word to people, sharing the gospel... Applying a biblical text to someone's life as you sit there over coffee feels ordinary. And yet we can't make the mistake of thinking that means it is ordinary. Because it's not. It is extraordinary. How extraordinary. Imagine being given the privilege of being the voice of God in someone's life. And that's actually the privilege we as believers have. Not on the basis of our own opinions or ideas, please. But on the basis of what the word of God says. When we accurately explain the word of God, that is a big deal because we're speaking God's word. We're giving the people the opportunity to hear from God himself. We represent God. We represent Jesus. That's first. What are we excited about? No matter how things go. We get to preach the Bible. We get to talk. We get to share God's word. We represent Jesus. Second, there's more. We get to represent Jesus. We get to be Christians. (laughs) These are basic, but this is really what's exciting. Verses 17 through 20. Luke says, the 72 return with joy, saying, Lord, even the demons are subject to us in your name. Now, remember, again, this is after all those woes, which came before Jesus sent them out. So I don't know if it's, it's fair to sort of read a hint of relief in the disciples' voice 
But I can imagine as they heard Jesus pronouncing all those woes right before they went out, they might have been a little discouraged if they actually understood what Jesus was saying. But it's almost like Jesus is giving them a pep talk. Go out there and offer the kingdom, and here's your pep talk. Woe, woe, woe to Chorazin. Woe to Bethsaida. Woe to Capernaum. You think, you're so great when you're actually going to hell. <laughs> and yet as the disciples went out, it wasn't all that terrible at first because they saw certain amazing things happen. Like, for example, they were able to cast out demons. And so as they come rushing back, they're like, Lord, you'll never believe this. Even the demons are subject to us in your name. In other words, it's almost like they're saying, Jesus, stuff's happening. Stuff is really happening. And they were relieved and they were thrilled and they couldn't wait to see what was coming next. And that's not surprising because if you think about when it comes to ministry, that's also the kind of thing we're normally rejoicing in as well. I mean, not necessarily the casting out of demons, but definitely visible results, visible results, obvious victories. I think it's normally a whole lot easier for us to be rejoicing as we see God being glorified through obvious victories, the kinds of things we can see with our eyes, which is why Jesus' response here is so important for us to hear. When the church grows and people are saved, it's easy for us as a church to think God's at work and to get so excited, and that's great, we should, but long term, our joy has to come from something deeper than just a ministry that looks like it's succeeding. Because you see here how Jesus responds to these men. And his response comes in two parts. First, he says, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. And honestly, it's going to be a little easy for us to get lost here because this is a hard phrase in terms of the specifics. Like, is this something happening in the past or in the present? Or is it a prophecy about the future? And yet, while I think in the context, it's probably referring to something actually happening at that moment as the disciples cast out demons, Jesus saw Satan fall like lightning. The reality is, I don't think we need to get too lost in figuring all of that out because the point here is pretty clear. What's happening is the disciples are coming back to Jesus all excited and saying, listen, the devil is being defeated. And so Jesus is seeing their excitement and he's responding responding, I know. I mean, this is not something that takes me by, by surprise because I already saw Satan fall like lightning. In other words, I know the demons were subject to you in your name because I've already seen the defeat of Satan. And you know, he actually goes on. He says, the fact that you're able to exercise this kind of authority over demons shouldn't be surprising to you either because verse 20, behold, I've given you authority to tread on serpents and scorpions. And that's another hard phrase as well, because you're like serpents and scorpions. Where did they come from? Since the disciples were just talking about demons, there doesn't seem to be any wild animals in the text. And yet I think this phrase, like the phrase Satan falling from lightning, is not so much literal as it is instead a graphic way of describing the kind of authority that Jesus had given these disciples over demonic powers. I know that you're excited about the defeat of these demons and maybe even a little surprise, but I'm not because I've already seen Satan defeated and I've given you authority over all these evil forces, which is what he goes on to say in the next phrase, if you look at it. To tread on serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy and nothing shall hurt you. 
And again, we're working a little here because that's also obviously very easily misinterpreted as well. Nothing shall hurt you. And it's a little confusing since many of those who faithfully followed Jesus ended up being martyred, like crucified and stoned and burned to death. Which is why Jesus must mean something a little different here than we might imagine at first. And if you turn over to Luke chapter 21 for a moment, I think you'll get an idea of what he means when he says to his disciples in Luke 21 verse 16, you will be delivered up even by parents and brothers and relatives and friends. And some of you they will, be, will put to death. You will be hated by all for my name's sake. But listen, not a hair of your head will perish. By your endurance, you will gain your lives, which is another strange thing for Jesus to say, right? Some of you, they will put to death, but not a hair of your head will perish. Because you're like, really, how's that helpful? The, the bad news is that I'll die, but the good news is my hair won't. Is that, is that what Jesus means? Obviously, that's not what Jesus means. Instead, Jesus takes the long view. That's the point. He sees heaven and hell. And so not perishing is not going to hell. And I think ultimately, if we come back to Luke 10, nothing being able to hurt you means the same thing as well. When the disciples came back to Jesus, they were relieved, excited, and rejoicing in what they saw God accomplishing through them in that moment. Demons being defeated. And Jesus is like, that's wonderful. And I knew it would happen because I'm the one who gave you that kind of authority in the first place. And so as I was telling you all that stuff about following me and suffering and the cross and the rejection of Israel and judgment and whoa, whoa, whoa. I wasn't saying you're not going to be safe ultimately. I wasn't saying that God's not going to work and that Satan's not going to be defeated. But what I was meaning instead was that the essence of your joy can't come primar from primarily right now from whatever successes you think you're seeing with your eyes as you go about doing ministry because you're not always going to be able to see those successes with your eyes in this world right now. And so instead, your joy needs to come from something bigger and better like mine does. You need to take the long view, verse 20. Nevertheless, do not rejoice in this that the spirits are subject to you, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven, which I think is so incredibly helpful because I'm like these disciples. I think most of us are. I want to be able to rejoice in what I do for Jesus, that the spirits are subject to me, you know? But Jesus is saying you shouldn't be rejoicing in what you're doing as much as you are rejoicing in what God's done for you. Look at it. Your names are written in heaven. Which is another statement that has a long biblical history, actually. And you should trace this out sometime if you want a, a fun Bible study. Read the Bible and, and find out where this phrase comes from. And you'll find that we're often given this picture of God being up in heaven and almost writing something down. Almost being like a scribe where he's opening a book and taking notes. It's kind of like God's got these books in heaven. In fact, you know, take a second and try to picture this. Try to picture being able to travel to heaven, which is God's home. And you're in heaven, and somehow after you traveled to heaven, you're in God's home, and you look up on God's bookshelf, 
And you see there's this really special book that he's written up there. Can you picture that? God's bookshelf. And on the bookshelf, there is a book called Life. And on the spine, it just says Life in capital letters. And so you kind of wander over there and you climb up the heavenly ladder and you take this book down from the shelf. And it's just this huge book. And you open it up and you see it's got the, this list of all these people, specific people whom God's written down and, and described. And as you're turning the pages, you see you. You see your name written there, written by God's own hand. And of course, this is just a picture, but it's a picture of what? It's a picture of being known by God, being chosen by God, being cared for by God, being safe, being certain, being sure that it's always going to be like that forever and ever because your name is written there in God's book of life. Which Jesus is saying back in Luke 10 is really the reason we should be rejoicing. And why we should be excited. And we need to hear that. Because if we're honest, we sometimes get so excited about all these things we see happening in our ministries as they're succeeding, which is great. But the problem is sometimes, again, that it's not so much about Jesus and his glory as it is about ours. And this is what's really tricky. Because sometimes the reason we struggle with such deep disappointment when our expectations aren't met in ministry is not so much because we are concerned about God's glory as it is because we are concerned about our own, you know? Which is why we have to examine what brings us most joy as believers. I think that's why Jesus says, don't rejoice here. It's kind of a shocking statement. Nevertheless, don't rejoice. It is like, be careful. <laughs> he hit the pause button. It's kind of like I was thinking you can imagine writing a book about Jesus. You write a book about Jesus somehow, and, and it gets published. And it starts selling, and you're all excited. You wrote this book about Jesus, and you're excited because it's helping people, and that's good. But I mean, ultimately, the thing we have to think about is which is really more exciting? You writing a book that mentions God, or God writing a book that mentions you? You hearing me? What brings us the most joy? That's number two. Are we overwhelmed with the fact that we get to represent Jesus and that we get to be a Christian? Never get over the fact that you get to be a Christian. Now number three. We represent Jesus. We're going to heaven. And we have this amazing revelation. Verse 21. In that same hour, Luke says, Jesus rejoiced in the Holy Spirit. And that is a, a beautiful little statement. And, and, and this rejoicing is extreme. In fact, the, the, the word literally means Jesus was exceedingly joyful. And apparently they say this is the most joy-filled picture of Jesus we have in the Gospels. Which is kind of ironic in that it's coming after telling the disciples he was going to be crucified. And after agonizing over the fact that these Jewish towns and villages are going to be rejecting him, as the disciples begin coming back, he begins reflecting with them on their salvation. And it seems 
their salvation almost begins to overwhelm him because he knows the source of it. And so he's filled up with joy and goes to God in prayer and says, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth. And this is the Trinity in action because Jesus, who's called Lord back in verse 1, is rejoicing in the Holy Spirit as he's praying to the Father, thanking him that you have hidden these things. These things being what exactly? These things are everything he's been saying about the kingdom of God, about him being the Messiah, about how God was accomplishing his people's salvation through Jesus' work on the cross. As he's looking at these disciples who don't understand everything, obviously, but are saved, they're saved, and they're saved because at least at some level they've seen the glory of Jesus and they've come to embrace what God the Father is doing through him. And Jesus is thinking about how that happened because he sees all these other people out there with the same Bible, experiencing the same experiences, seeing all kinds of miraculous proofs who are hardening their hearts and rejecting him. And ultimately, Jesus knows that the difference comes down to a supernatural work of God the Father in the hearts of people who honestly didn't deserve to know or understand anything at all. You know, we're all out there, and we're all the same when it comes to God from birth. We're all born blind spiritually. How blind? We're so blind that God could take thousands of years to draw us a detailed picture of what Jesus looks like. Put it in our hands. And we could spend our entire lives studying that picture and have Jesus show up and look exactly like the picture said he would look. With all kinds of miraculous things happening all around him to confirm that. And still stare him in the face and say, you know what? I, I don't see it. That's how the people in Jesus' day were, and that's how we all are. That's not just Israel or the Pharisees. They're like the best of us, and they're missing it. And yet God sees us in this terrible condition and stoops down once again, like over and above all that he's already done, and enables us to see what's there right in front of us already. And that's the only way that we can see Jesus. And as Jesus looks at these disciples, he's just marveling because who does God the Father choose to do that for? Jesus says, not the wise and understanding, but the little children. And this is the shock because out of this whole world filled with all these important, significant people, when God chose to stoop down and reveal himself and what he's doing to individuals, he chose to do so to insignificant, unimportant people like us. Jesus says, for such was your gracious will. And you could translate that actually, for so it pleased you well. God was happy to do this. It's not just that you know the gospel and have seen Jesus. It's that God the Father wanted you to. Do you realize that if you've seen Jesus, it's because God the Father wanted you to. If you are a Christian, you are part of the great, big, eternal plan of God. And that is such a privilege and reason for joy and confidence in the middle of everything, no matter what. That's why we have hope. That's why we keep going. And as people who want to serve Jesus, who want to live on mission, who want to accomplish something, we have to keep coming back over and over to this. Because as we go out to serve God, there are going to be a lot of things that don't make sense to us. Maybe some stuff will go well. Maybe some stuff won't. I don't know. I do know 
that we won't understand everything about what God's doing and about how he's accomplishing his plan. And sometimes we might even get a little concerned about whether or not God's still in control and able to accomplish what he said. And it's then, church, that we need to pause. We need to slow down. And we need to stop and look at Jesus. We may have this clearly successful ministry, all these people coming. We may not have this successful ministry. Who knows? What should we be excited about? We should be excited either way about the fact that God, the Father, has enabled us to see Jesus and to know the truth about Jesus. You know, it's a lot easier to rejoice in ministry when you believe in the doctrine of election. Because how much can I complain, really, when I realize I'm nothing special? I'm no one important. I'm, a, I'm even worse than no one important. I'm a sinner who deserves hell. And yet, out of the entire world, God chose to enable me to actually be able to know and see who Jesus is. And specifically, if you look down at, at verse 22, what's the truth about Jesus that God has revealed to us? He says, all things have been handed over to me by my Father. And this is just a massive statement Jesus is making about himself because he calls God my Father which tells us something about the uniqueness of their relationship. And that uniqueness comes out in the statement itself when Jesus says, all things have been handed over to him by his father, which means, and listen, Jesus is not talking before the incarnation here, before becoming man, I don't think, because as God the Son, he was equal with God the Father. We know the Bible teaches one God exists in three persons, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit, and they're equal. And so as creator God, before he took on human nature, all things belong to him because he made them, which means all things being handed over to him must have something to do with what happened after he added human nature to his divine nature. And I have to be careful because we're talking about God here, and this is a little beyond me, and it would be easy for me to say something that was accidentally heresy. But at the very least, this is Jesus' way of reminding the disciples that even though he has become man and he's standing there right in front of them like that, they know he is in a position of unique authority and that he plays this huge role in God's salvation plan. And so even if right now we can't work out all the mysteries of Jesus being fully God and fully man and have been given all this authority completely as believers, we know that's who Jesus is. He is the preeminent one. He is the most important, most exalted person on the face of the planet. And God's goal is to unite all things in heaven and earth under him. And just knowing that is huge because, Jesus says, no one knows who the Son is except the Father. And so if we know this, it's because God the Father revealed him to us. And we can't just take that knowledge for granted. We know Jesus. We know about the incarnation. We know a little bit about the mystery of his person, and that's a knowledge that we could never access on our own. That's locked to us unless the Father revealed it to us, and he has. And what's more, Jesus goes on to say, not only do we know the Son, we also know the Father for the same reason. Look at verse 21 and 22 in contrast. The Father's revealed the Son to us. That's verse 21. And that's necessary because the Father is the only one who really knows who the Son is. And in the same way, the Son is the only one who knows who the Father is. Verse 22, no one knows who the Father is except the Son. And again, the point is, unless Jesus revealed God to us, the knowledge of God the Father would be completely locked to us as well. We would go through this whole life 
separated from God, unable to truly know God, and yet that's the thing. We do know God because Jesus has revealed this to us. The end of verse 22, no one knows who the Father is except the Son and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him, which makes us extremely privileged as Christians. That's what I'm saying. It is such a privilege to be saved and to know God the way we know him. It's not just facts. In some mysterious, awesome, supernatural way, God has revealed himself, who he is to us. And that's a gift. And we can never forget that. When church is going great or when it's not, that's what's really exciting. We can't take this for granted, the gospel. We do, but we can't. And I'm trying to say this at the beginning because I think we see how easily we get excited or discouraged about the wrong things as Christians. And that's why we go up, and that's why we go down. And I want to say to you at the beginning, these are really the truths that should thrill us. Do you realize while we might look back at all kinds of people in salvation history with a little envy, you know, think about Isaiah or Daniel, we wish we could be them. But I think we can legitimately say they would wish to be us because of the way in which God has revealed himself to us through Jesus, which is why verse 23, Jesus turns to the disciples and says, blessed are the eyes that see what you see. For I tell you that many prophets and kings desired to see what you see and did not see it and to hear what you hear and did not hear it. And who else besides prophets and kings wish they could see what you see? Anybody know if you think about the whole Bible? Who else really wished to understand the kinds of things that you understand? Maybe fast forward in your mind to 1 Peter, 1 Peter chapter 1. Angels. Imagine going up to heaven, you see all these angels like all jumping over each other trying to stare at something. You kind of sneak in there, you're trying to get under the wings or whatever, they, you know, whatever they, trying to get in there, see what they're looking at. And what are they looking at? The church! What God's done through Christ for the church. That's what should thrill you. The disciples had it so good, not because everything went the way they were expecting, but because they were given revelation about God and about Jesus that people throughout history have longed to have. And again, that's not just true for them. That's true for us. We don't know everything we wish we knew, and we don't know everything that we one day will know, but we do know much more about what God is doing than thousands and millions of people who have lived before us. We are so extremely privileged. We represent Jesus. We get to be Christians. We have revelation. And yet we all know in the middle of the craziness of life, it's easy to take for granted how good we have it. And, and we can easily as a church start to look at what's happening and sort of feel like what reason do we have for rejoicing? You serve Jesus, you get sick. God, what's going on? You try to serve Jesus, you get rejected. Is this really how it's supposed to be? You try to serve Jesus, nothing seems to work. This ministry thing isn't what you expected. And in those moments, while we can all understand getting discouraged in ministry because it can feel so hard, we have to be careful 
be careful how you're feeling. Because if you're a Christian, if we're Christians, you might not have what you want, but you do have what's most important. You have a purpose. You represent God. You speak the gospel accurately. You speak for Jesus. What more significance could you really want than that? And that's not even all. Not only do you have a purpose, you have a future. Your names are written in God's book. What an honor. What earthly honor could be bigger than that? We are representatives of Jesus, and we're Christians. And most importantly, the reason you know Jesus, the reason you've seen Jesus, is because that truth, Jesus has been revealed to you by God himself. And so it might not always feel like it, and it might not always look like it, but we are the most privileged people on the planet. And as we look to the future and we get all excited as a church and as we go out there and serve Jesus, it is vital, absolutely vital, if we're going to honor God and persevere and stay on track, that we remember what is really significant, what's really important, whether things go the way we expect or whether they don't. There, there's a lot of the things that are exciting about being a church and being a ministry, but there is nothing bigger than being able to speak for God, to have eternal life, and to be able to enjoy the privilege of seeing Jesus and knowing God. Let's pray. Father, help us to know what we know. This is the, one of the beauties of the knowledge that's revealed in the gospel. Other knowledge, we, we, we learn it, and it's not so amazing to us. So we learn something about science that seemed mysterious to us, and we're like, oh, that's how that worked. That's not that exciting. But this knowledge, this is, these are things that we know, but Lord, help us to know them because it's, it's knowledge that gets bigger and better and more joy-producing and confidence-producing the deeper we go. And so, Lord, help us to be careful, not just to say to ourselves, Hey, I know I get to represent Jesus. I know I have eternal life. I, I, I know that uh, the gospel is a privilege. The revelation I have is a privilege. But Lord, to ask ourselves, do we know? Do we really know what we know? And uh, may it cause us to be people who lives lives that, and a church that per perseveres and lives lives that are completely different as a result. We pray this in your name, our great Savior. Amen.